It's your funeral. Come over to my place, have a fish sandwich, and we'll see what happens. The very brilliant agent of a certain foreign power is on the point of obtaining a secret vital to your air defense. An enormously important secret is being taken out of this country by a foreign agent. There's a man leaving the country tonight with some... I'm just about to uh, convey some very vital information out of the country. Have you ever heard of the 39 steps? No, what's that? Welcome to Nobody Knows Anything, a podcast where we mine old movies for new ideas. With me are Mike. Hi. And Brian. Hey. I'm Leah. I blog about classic film at CaryGrantWon'tEatYou.com. For six episodes, we'll be focusing on conspiracy films. Mike, tell us why you thought it was time to talk conspiracy. I think for the most part, we're kind of in a paranoid moment, um, not only with like the multiple investigations, but also just like, you know, fear of vaccines, fear of, you know, foreign agents, fear of everything. And just as we get to know more and more about the world through the internet, we tend to get more and more scared that something nefarious is going on. Great. And I think we all are feeling (laughs) paranoia right now. Before we talk shop, um, we're going to talk about how we feel about the movie. We chose 39 steps for our first choice. Brian, why don't you get us started? How did you feel about the film? Happy to. Um, I think it's probably just a good point to remind everyone that we are just going to ignore any concept of spoiler. It's an 80-year-old movie, but more to the point, if we're going to have an adult conversation about what this is, I don't want to be saying the word spoiler every two seconds. So please go see the movie if you have not and come back. So I actually, I was struck by 39 Steps in that I'd forgotten how little actual plot there is, that it is effectively one guy running through the hills of Scotland and back. It's, it's, it's like, it's like a, it's like a marathon basically from Edinburgh back to, to London. And, um, but in that it's incredibly charming and arresting. And I think it, despite the fact that it gives a sort of rompish feel as you're going through it, it's actually much more insidious than it than it lets on. It's 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 pointing you at some much darker ideas. I think I forgot how little uh, what's her name Madeline Carroll was actually in the movie. She really she has one scene early on when he's on the train, and then he uh, she shows up like with thirty minutes left. It's a really tight short movie. Besides that, but it's. She's not in there very much. Yeah, it's true. And she's sort of a peculiar character. She's not very sympathetic um, in a lot of ways. And I think that's kind of funny because we're so aligned with, you know, Hannah's version of events by that point that when she actually comes in, we just see her as really annoying and dense for not getting that it's a conspiracy when really everyone else thinks that he's being ridiculous, right? But for some reason with her, it comes across as she's being particularly um, dim-witted for not catching on, which I think is pretty interesting. Well, and there's this double joke going on there, which like, from her point of view, there's this insane man ranting at her on a train who just like (laughs) forced himself on her. (laughs) And he's claiming that he's not a murderer, which, you know, I've never met a murderer who's like, yeah, I'm a murderer, you know? like So... (laughs) Do you meet a lot of them, Brian? I do. You know, <laughs> listen, you, you work enough bars in the South, you meet a lot of murderers. <laughs> we don't have kitchens in the South, actually, to be honest. But the, um, 
I don't think that there's this, like from her point of view, this entire story is insane. The, the craziest part is when she actually realizes he might not be nuts. Um, and it's largely through overhearing a phone call. I'm not sure I would have been convinced just by that moment in time. That was a little convenient there at times, too. Okay, well, actually, can you guys clear up something for me in terms of plot? So when our first heroine, who has some of the best lines in the movie, ends up with a knife in her back, was she in the apartment when she was killed? I couldn't figure that out. Like, was there somebody, I don't know, like she went down to the street perhaps, or somebody threw a knife up to the second story and just hit her in the back, which was what I thought initially, which, you know, (laughs) if that's the case, I don't understand how Hannah survived this. So, and I was pretty sure it was the same bread knife that he had used to like make her that fish sandwich, which by the way, dudes in England have serious game. If you bring a girl over to the house, what works is like, I'll make you a fish sandwich. Well, I mean, he has serious game throughout the entire (laughs) movie. I mean, the woman in Scotland's just ready to leave her husband and everything (laughs) at the first sight of him. Oh, yes. (laughs) Listen, that is that is the Moors. The Moors are doing all the work for you there. I'm pretty sure, you know, um, that could have been Hitchcock's uh, cameo, and uh, he would have gone away with the girl at the end of that movie. Like, oh, I know. Oh, I didn't. Even, I know. Where yeah, it was. where was it? You guys didn't find it. Um, no, it's a subtle one. I'm pretty sure, and I should double check it. But when they get on the bus, there's a guy who walks into frame and throws some litter, and I'm pretty sure that's Hitchcock. Oh, funny. I'm gonna have to go back. He's wearing a hat and an overcoat, and it's not a full-on face. It's not like the other cameos, right? So he, he just walks through frame, but he grabs your attention by throwing the litter very intensely. That's so funny. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to go check that out. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't figure out either how she... I just kept trying to imagine, like, a knife being thrown up <laughs> through a window. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. She's so paranoid. There's no way she would have left the apartment. But if they're in, why didn't they kill him? That was the part that got me. Like, okay, so you kill this woman with probably the fish knife, and then you leave, but then you start calling the apartment from the same payphone you were at before? <laughs> like... Listen, I don't know any... The 39 Steps is a pretty shitty spy ring, is all I'm saying. If they can't manage to kill two people in one apartment, I don't understand. And, and one of them is a Canadian, for Christ's sakes. I mean, how hard yes. is that? <laughs> Apparently very well, difficult. Don't you love, too, that his pickup line for this woman was, it's your funeral, <laughs> and she dies. Yeah. It was just like... Really, really funny how absurd that was. The, but yeah, the screenwriting is pretty. The, the line by line on this movie is really great. And I actually think that's something that makes it work. Um, the dialogue is is fantastic. There's a lot of great dialogue it's throughout. Funeral, though, I agree. Is, <laughs> it just sets you right off the bat. You're like, yep. I haven't da- I haven't dated in a while, but uh, I'm pretty sure I couldn't pull <laughs> that off. <laughs> exactly, and. <laughs> it was a different time. It was just so and he looks time. kind of hostile too when he has her come over. I mean, he's not excited. There's no, and there's also very strangely no presumption that they're actually going to hook up, which is very odd in itself. He, there's a lot of weirdness there. He may be slightly disappointed that she's not a prostitute, right? Because <laughs> she says he, she's, he's like, she's like, "Do you know what I do?" And he's like, "You're an actress." And she's like, "Not in the way you mean." And, you know, obviously I know what way she means, but what, I'm not sure there's any other reason to go to the music halls <laughs> anyway. 
So I think I think what we have is a character who's sad he didn't accidentally pick up a prostitute at a riot. <laughs> But it's gentlemanly enough to make her a fish sandwich and is then genuinely thrown for a loop when uh, she's dead. It's true. And I kind of wish she'd stuck around a little bit more just because she's so over the top dramatic that she's highly entertaining. But where do you think if you were going to place this movie in sort of Hitchcock's, you know, best films, where would you put this one? I was having a tough time with that. I was trying to go through a list of them, and I think it's it's definitely in like tier two for me. It's um, I had Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Notorious mm-hmm. up on tier one, and then I think it's one of his better tier two films. So I think it's it's close to the top five. Um, I was trying to think of what else. I mean, like I like it better than The Birds and Psycho and mm-hmm. um, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Both versions of it, I like it better than Lady Vanishes. I'm not sure I like it as much as Rebecca. That would be the only one I think I could put above that. It's very similar to The Lady Vanishes to me. I'm not sure I like it better. They're very different in in what they in what they give you. Like, you know, you don't have a nice shootout on a train on this one. Um, True. But they I, I think they are kind of similar movies in that it's like, oh, some something happened. And off we go. <laughs> That's the rest of it. <laughs> But The Lady Vanishes takes a while to sort of rev up. This one's pretty quick. You're into yeah. it and you're running. And it's I, true. I really appreciated that about this. I, I just happen to like old ladies getting tea in movies. <laughs> I actually get really bored in The Lady Vanishes. I think it's this one for me. I don't think it's one of his best, but for me, it is one of his most entertaining I mean, I'd say like number 10 or something in terms of just entertainment value, because I mean, the crowd alone at the music hall and just (laughs) the ridiculous questions they're throwing out. There's just a lot of humor the whole time that keeps me going. That hilarious political speech he's got where it it just reminds me very much of Fletch. You know, (laughs) there's just a lot of moments that I thought were just really clever um, so even though I wouldn't say, obviously, it's as sophisticated as some of his others, I do think it's one of the really fun ones. So that brings us to the question, right, that we're really focused on here, which is we have identified this as a conspiracy film. Why do we think it's a conspiracy film? I think it's interesting in that, if to me, it feels like the beginning of a kind of conspiracy film. And it's missing some aspects that I think are important for later work. I don't think you have that sense of crushing state power that's present here. The conspiracies that exist for me are smaller scale and private, um, but they are also uh, interacting with what I would call cultural conspiracies that aren't acknowledged. So, of course, the police believe the local male professor person over this other, you know, there's, and of course, the crofter is allowed to beat his wife and is assumed to be honest by the police because of these existing social conspiracies that are only brought to light by the fact that our hero runs through them um, and and calls them into question. But they don't have that oppressive feeling that you get later on. I do think it's important because it, it establishes the kind of hero that you need in a conspiracy film, which is adaptable, flexible, every man, and you don't need to know anything about him. I kind of like that the conspiracy is still in this one. They don't go into great detail about sort of the mechanisms or the machinations that are going on with it. It's just a spy ring, right? It doesn't seem to be, 
it doesn't overburden itself with trying to explain how every how the spider web works in some ways. And I think the Mr. Memory part, you know, framing the film is a really kind of clever technique. Um, you know, if you haven't seen it the first time, you think this is just some sort of silly British cultural thing. But uh, it ends up being, I think, uh, it works pretty well. Yeah, and I think the the thing that works for me is how much the sort of mundane everyday life is blended with this really ominous situation. Um, because, you know, while you're worried about, you know, some foreign power, the people across the train from you are going to be talking about lingerie. <laughs> and so I feel like he really captured the eeriness of knowing something is going on that's not right and is very alarming And yet no one else is not only paying attention, but they're focused on completely different things. And I feel like for that effect, I feel like he really nailed that because it makes it possible for you to believe that this is a conspiracy, but it also makes you believe it's possible that this conspiracy is real because he's got all of these highly realistic things going on at the same time. So I thought that that was really it made it work for me because it made it believable. And I think that's the thing about the conspiracy theory. You have to believe that it's possible. And I think Hitchcock does that here. I kind of want to talk about that lingerie scene for a second, um, because I think there's a bit of a wink and a nod happening there about how these kind of conspiracies exist in different worlds. So those guys are talking about the new model and everything else and having a good time going over it. but. At the end, they talk about how they got scooped by this other firm that basically did some sort of corporate espionage and stole their model or was working on the same model and able to bring it out faster. And what's happening there is kind of a discussion about insider trading and whether or not they can manipulate the stuff that's happening behind the veil in business in order to get across this secret that they have. I mean, they're basically claiming they have a secret technology for brassiers. <laughs> and <laughs> in many ways, it matches the movie as a whole. And the fact that you, it's very hard to register that that's what's happening at that moment in the script and it's played mostly for a laugh, but it's actually the same thing. The plot is almost identical to the movie as a whole, I think works to create these subtle environments of conspiracy throughout. I like that, the little conspiracy within the big conspiracy of the film. It's really like a revenge tragedy with the play inside the play sort of thing. Commenting upon <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, those are your grave diggers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one of the reasons that um, when I look at sort of how this holds up today, I feel like, you know, knowing that at the time, this exact time, right, the Soviets were infiltrating Cambridge to recruit spies. So it's kind of like, as you're watching, you're thinking, okay, this this might seem ridiculous that some upper crust person could be involved in some conspiracy and everyone around him is saying this is ridiculous. And yet, historically, we know, well, actually, <laughs> these upper crust people were at the very time of this film becoming spies, which is just so fascinating to me to look at it now. Um, and it's just such an interesting sort of... I mean, you know, obviously there's paranoia and there's, you know, that's something. But I think in terms of this film, one of the reasons I really like watching it is that, you know, maybe at the time it seemed really ridiculous, but now it seems pretty spot on. That's an interesting point. Um, 
it's kind of thinking about the context of this too. Is like there there is that rising so- Soviet threat, the rising Nazi threat at this time period. Um, and I find it interesting. Like it seems to seems like it's such a precursor to everything that's going to happen with film noir later on, where it the shadows, the sense of doom, the sense mm-hmm. of you know just being alone in the universe and totally alienated because you have this knowledge. Um, it really is kind of revolutionary. There's that one scene where he slips inside the parade to hide from the cops or to hide from whoever. And he, the, the fugitive with Harrison Ford directly steals that. And I just remember seeing that I'm like, Oh my God, this film is just, you know, three days of the condor, which we'll get to in a few weeks does the same thing with sort of these, you know, having a woman, come along who doesn't exactly want to do that. That's a, I mean, and that's a really interesting trope I want to explore um, in terms of like, why do we need her to be there? And I think it's, it's related to some extent to uh, something Leah was pointing out too, about how the hero, the secret knowledge of the hero is vital to how a conspiracy movie works. Like he's basically in the sort of Gnostic sense, the only enlightened or woken up person besides the villains mm-hmm that he encounters and in, you know, in many of the Gnostic myths and, and also some of the grail myths and the romance and legends that this also draws from, you need this female presence for the knight errant to bounce things off of. Right. And I'm not exactly sure why that's true or why we exploit that motif so much in these contexts. What's interesting to me is that she's not given a choice to come along for the ride. And that, and as Mike points out that that stays true in the genre later on as well. So is there something about a desperate, enlightened, even in a dark way, male figure that we forgive him kidnapping a woman or we, or we need him to kidnap a woman in some sense? Like, why does it, why do you think it pans out that way? And he's forgiven which is also consistent in these films, right? You know, and we're somehow supposed to think that it's romantic. I mean, he's, you know, he's threatened her with a gun. (laughs) He's lying in bed to her. He's hooked to her, right? And somehow, even though he's done all of these things, we have her smiling and thinking it's kind of romantic later in the night when she finds out that maybe he's telling the truth. And it's kind of like, it doesn't really matter if he's telling the truth in terms of how you've been treated. So I think that's a really interesting thing that we're supposed to, how sympathetic the hero has to be for us to go with that. I mean, we have to, and that's what I think is interesting. I think to an extent, we have to demonize her as an audience a little bit Um, in order to be okay with his treatment. And so I think that's a really interesting thing that we're asked to kind of be complicit in thinking, well, she's just being dense. She's not understanding. She's kind of holding up this opportunity to spoil a huge plot. Um, But I think that's really, yeah. What do you think about that, Mike? I think it's probably why she's only in really the last half of the film too. We need to sort of be in his shoes for a while so that when he does something like, you know, hold a fake gun to a woman and like, you know, put her in bed with him and, you know, things that are generally think, you know, behavior that you should go to prison for. We have to be incredibly (laughs) empathetic to his cause right now. And, um, I think it becomes a problem though, when you start to push on it just a little bit too, that she's incredibly normal. Like that's the problem with this too. She's, 
every the only ra- irrational decision she makes is to not run away from him the first chance she gets. That's the only irrational decision she really makes. And one of the questions I had too was like, what if the Croft? What if you rewrote this and the Crofter's wife left with him? Like, what if she becomes the person who believes him, goes along with him, willing? You know, I'll show you through the moors. They end up in the Highlands someplace, and she's, you know, they have an escape together. And she's like, there's nothing left for me to go back for, right? I don't think it works, though, because she's a non, like the heroine in this, Pamela, is a non-believer. And I think it has to be a non-believer. I don't think, I think that woman would have gone for anything, right? (laughs) Just like, get me out of here. So I think it has to be a skeptic, because I think to an extent, we have to be able to put ourselves in Pamela's shoes, Mm. right? Well, it's interesting, too, that Hitchcock subverts this trope in North by Northwest, where Eva Marie Sane is actually has agency, and she is acting on her own, too, which I think is, uh, which makes it, I think, a better film. Yeah, and I think in terms of holding up and where we could go in the future with these kind of ideas, like this, this trope really can't work anymore. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure you could really make a character. I'm not sure you should want to make a character empathetic enough that the kidnapping rather than the convincing is vital to how the movie moves. Um, I don't know. It doesn't strike me as something that I would want to include in a film anymore in part because, as Mike says, it limits the female character too much and you don't get enough pushback. But, you know, they re- Hitchcock really does try to make uh, Hanny really likable. You know, not incredibly brilliant, but, you know, likable enough that you will, you know, forgive those trespasses. It's true. And he's, you know, I didn't expect to find him attractive because, you know, I knew he was in Goodbye, Mr. Chips. And I thought, oh, this is some super cheesy performer and actually i think he's very attractive in this film and i think that he does he i don't think he's as inherently as attractive as a lot of the actors who will follow in different conspiracy films but i think that his mannerisms just the sort of playful way about him um make him really likable and i think it's really funny how he plays on his sexuality because it's the only way out over and over again. Right. You know, it's just to the milkman, right. To this, you know, the people in the hotel, like somebody can buy me as the seducer. Um, I wonder if that's colored by the fact you live in New Hampshire, which is like the (laughs) Scottish Highlands of America. (laughs) I think, I I think it's something, (laughs) it's pretty funny. The, um, I think also there is a fair bit about cultural signifiers too. Like that hair and the mustache and stuff. We don't see that as, you know, maybe except in some parts of Brooklyn, like, you know, signs of attractiveness. <laughs> but, uh, but I think time period wise, he, he, I bet he was pretty solid in, you know, a solid eight uh, for the, for 35. There's one larger question related to that, though, I did want to ask, which is that, you know, most of the violence in the film is actually done to women with the exception of Hannah and Mr. Memory. And the, and you know, the Crofter's wife, while she says like, Oh, he'll just pray at me. Like she very clearly gets beaten at one point in the film. And you sort of wonder if, and the kidnapping itself is a form of violence. Right. So it's, it's you sort of wonder if like there isn't an underlying conspiracy of like, yeah, yeah, no, this is necessary. Of course, this is what you're supposed to do. You know, if you're doing the right thing, it's okay. If you kidnap a woman, like, what, what uh, like is there something working behind the film that they're not even aware of 
as itself a weird form of conspiracy. I think there's something interesting about, I mean, I think you could make that argument about the main relationship, but actually I admired the fact that Hitchcock was showing, you know, this is, it's often women who get hurt in these sort of situations, right? Because the person who helps, I mean, I always worry about the milkman actually while I'm watching this too. (laughs) I'm thinking that guy's toast. He's not going to make it five minutes before they kill him. So I I liked that he showed the sort of effect, like people are going to pay a price for helping somebody who's in the middle of this conspiracy theory. And a lot of times the people who are going to pay that price are going to be women. And I liked that that there's sort of an acknowledgement here. And I think Hitchcock, (laughs) in terms of sexism, there's some serious issues. But I thought this was a a kind of cool moment for him. That's a good way to look at it, too. Um, You know, that balance point between, and this is Hitchcock's problem, right? When he's on the point of these are real things and they need to be acknowledged, he's better. When he's on the like, oh, isn't it great? We're strangling this woman in a a, uh, fruit van. Was that frenzy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, Enough said about frenzy. That's a tough watch. <laughs> yeah. You know, he clearly goes the other way. And so, you know, it's just, I think it's a, I like your, your way of taking what he's offering. Yeah, I'm not sure it was intentional, but I'm right. glad, to, I'm glad to see I it. I like your, I like your read. <laughs> so, I mean, he does, there is a lot about how men torture women in his stuff, yeah. like suspicion, mm-hmm. Um, even notorious a little bit. Cary Grant's not exactly the nicest guy there. Oh, he's awful. You know, you see it over and over again, Vertigo, the way he just like, he just can't see outside of his own desires. And um, I think there is sort of a sympathy for women. I'm not sure he has an empathy for them though, because he, most of the time, they're never really that developed. Yeah, and it is interesting in terms of the focus on psychology of women though, that you don't see as much with other directors of the time. And, and so I would say he's not very, yeah, in some ways he doesn't seem to see them as fully rounded human beings, but it's also hard to think of that many other films from his time period where anyone was delving into female psychology to this extent. And I think, you know, what do you do when you're with somebody who's super sketchy? Right. And they're just sort of mind games. I mean, I'm thinking there's I mean, there's definitely some others like if you think of Gaslight and stuff like that. So there's there's definitely some others that get into that. But I can give him credit for that. I mean, it is kind of interesting, too, to just see in general how many different ways Hitchcock gets into conspiracies, period. I mean, we were, we were talking about that, right? What's How many ways do you think Hitchcock is just sort of obsessed with conspiracies, period, in his films? I mean, you can, you can make an argument that almost all of them are in some way about that, about the unknown, about the hidden, about forces coming after you, about the individual having to stand up to larger worlds larger than him. Um, and I don't know where that obsession comes from, but it repeats itself over and over again too. the sense of being trapped in something larger than yourself. Well, I think you're, that's a good point. And I also think that like he, he may actually offer us a way to make newer conspiracy movies as well, because he's not locked into what I think becomes a sort of seventies paradigm of like, like we were talking earlier, that sort of crushing governmental Mm -hmm. force. He's pointing out that like, yeah, that's true, but also this, and also, you know, 
the conspiracy of two guys meeting on the stairs uh, to lie to their wives about who they're sleeping with, right? Yeah. Like when Hannah is, you know, what's what makes the milkman upset is that he's not let in on the conspiracy, right? He's not taken as a conspirator, right? And once that code is passed, he's like, of course, I'll give you the shirt off my back, <laughs> right? Right. But and he even objects. He's like, you, why were you telling me that other story? Didn't you think I too might be someone who sneaks around on my wife and may be in the same club? Right. And I think there's this sort of club conspiracy that's very present in Hitchcock and is probably truer to how conspiracies work contemporaneously in real life and in history. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing to take with us. Two men meet on a train and decide to kill each other's, you know, the wife and mother. Right. So all the credit there goes to Patricia Highsmith. I'm just saying. Oh, no. But that was right up his alley, though, too. It was definitely. Up I wonder alley. if I'm trying to think of examples where women are involved in the conspiracy or is this sort of just a masculine domain? I mean, even Marie saying a little mm-hmm. bit has an agenda, but um, I'm trying to think like, well, it's, let's go ahead. Oh, notorious. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know what you, that's not, she's not really in on the conspiracy so much as ending it, but she has so much more agency than most of his heroines, even though she is kind of at the mercy of a lot of bad people. At least she's, yeah. you know, she's respected enough to sort of, well, I don't know though, actually, even that there's, there's sort of some. I mean, she's the hero. At that yeah. Point, you know, and so she's, involved but not of yeah it. but she's not actually a conspirator and she's lousy at being a spy too so i'm not sure that's but i think i think you've raised a good point there too that in terms of the way that conspiracy is constructed at the time period it seems like something that is only a male power because of how male dominated much of these things are you know the mafia isn't female dominated um the cia isn't female dominated right Nope. So, yeah. you know, where, where are women supposed to find their conspiracies? I bet we would need to go into witchcraft movies, to be honest. But then again, I mean, yeah, the women are like the ones sort of, I don't know if they have agency, but they're, uh, they're pushing it out against other women. So that's interesting. Well, I don't think it's an accident that most of the strong female characters we see in film are alien movies, right? right. There's, there's something really interesting to me about that, that, um, you try to think of the characters who are really admirable female characters. And so often it's some kind of sci-fi. It's mostly Sigourney Weaver. You're basically just pointing at her. I might just be talking about Sigourney Weaver. It's true. (laughs) She had a a pretty, pretty strong effect on all of us. But even then she's not part of the conspiracy, right? She's again, our hero working against it. Like I'm trying to even now think of like, contemporary films where you have a woman engineering the conspiracy. I guess um, oh, now it, the name just went out of my head. Lawyer movie, George Clooney. Oh, Michael Clayton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess Tilda Swinton's character in, in Michael Clayton is is the conspiracy. Yeah, I think more of, you know, the sort of female-dominated sort of uh, plots when they play... You know, somebody who's usually it's more crime oriented when the yeah. when the females play more of an, a lead role. It's usually more of a plot to do with crime. It's not. Yeah, you're right. It's not so much a government conspiracy, though. I mean, definitely we see some work in the 70s with women who are 
trying to take a stand against different conspiracies. So maybe it just takes a while to they get have there. All the women go crazy movies of the eighties and nineties, starting with fatal attraction. And right. It's just like basically realizing male fears <laughs> that our, our actions have consequences and our bunnies are going to end up boiled because of it. <laughs> I heard uh, that it was uh, that Glenn Close had a real issue too, with the way they ended that film and, you can see it because it's just so dismissive of every, I don't know, of women in general, mental health, all kinds of issues with that one. But I also just to pull back for a second, wanted to say that one of the other things Hitchcock like influences here is that the hero's skill, unlike Miss Close, is the ability to escape. <laughs> random yes. Things. I don't know how many times uh, they have Hannah jump out a window in this movie. <laughs> But it's got to be my favorite Canadian mode of travel, I think. <laughs> well, you know, we even had that kind of boring moment, right, where it's on the bridge. And I, I do think there's a question on how much influence this film had on the conspiracy films that followed. Because one of the things I think is really strange about watching this film is I feel like I've seen it before. You know, it's just like there's so many things that people have either stolen from this film or it stole from something else. That I just feel like, for example, that the the hero's just not that bright. Right? He's he's not dumb, but he's he definitely doesn't have it all figured out. The best scene is when he's going on and on to the sheriff about how great it is that he's you know the sheriff's actually going to help him, and the whole time you're like, oh man, only in Canada would you even think this was going to happen. And then the sheriff, no. <laughs> the moment the sheriff turns around and is like, do you think I enjoyed like talking up the murderer the entire time? Like what took yes. you guys so long? I was like, that's also an amazingly British thing. He's like, I'm mad. You made me wait and talk to this guy <laughs> and string him along for this entire time. On that note, next week we'll be talking about Dr. Strangelove. Thank you for listening. You can find this podcast and other posts on classic film at my blog, CarrieGrantWon'tEatYou.com. Check out Brian Wilkins' tweets at WilkinsBrian. That's Brian with an I. You can find info about Mike's book, The Trench Angel, at MichaelKeenanGutierrez.com. Thank you.